Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Business of Film. My name is Jesse Eichmann, and this is episode number 75. It's been a while. Guys, it has been a while, and I'm, I'm excited to do this. I'm excited to be back. I'm excited about our guests. I'm excited about the two guests who are on our show today with us. Uh, they reached out through their PR agency. Uh, they were like, hey, we want to be on the Business Film Podcast, and I hadn't haven't done one of these in a little little while i'd kind of been feeling that we had covered a lot of the topics that we needed to cover on the business of film and i hadn't wanted to take a deep dive into any new subjects really until these these two cats who are on our show today reached out and that's because it's all about new media these gentlemen who are on our show they are uh they are in the entertainment and media division they'll introduce themselves in just a moment uh at the firm green hassan and jenks they issued a white paper called The Evolution of New Media, Making Money in a World Where Digital Streaming Rules, and uh, it's a pretty cool paper. I have to say, I read it, I was really intrigued, and I thought, you know what, we got to get these guys on the show. There's some really interesting information here. We covered three really broad topics here, uh, and our last topic uh, is, is well, it's not going to blow your mind, but I would say the last topic, which is a contractual uh, topic about you know what you need to be looking for in your distribution contracts right now. This this one piece of advice that these guys give, if you're listening to this and you're in the middle of a contractual negotiation with respect to SVOD uh, uh, product, I'm telling you this could make you an extra hundred grand plus. Uh, so there's some really cool stuff in here. Uh, I know I'm doing a little bit of a longer introduction than I normally do. And that's just because it's been so long since we've had this conversation that I just want to say, you know, thank you for continuing to listen to the podcast. People are still listening. They're still downloading. They're still, you know, diving deep into these now 75 episodes that we have here on the Business of Film. I'm going to continue to to do these and I'm excited for, you know, for the future ahead. So if you want to find me, I've also got a new YouTube channel uh, where we go into more um, you know, film-related stuff, more casual nature. You can find that uh, uh, youtube.com forward slash uh, me, I guess, Jesse Eichmann. Uh, just look up me on YouTube, and uh, there's some really interesting stuff there. So, um, yeah, I, I, won't, I won't belabor this intro anymore. Uh, let's get going with the evolution of new media, making money in a world where digital streaming rules. Thanks for listening. Here we go. Yeah, no, no, this is, it's fine, it's fine, guys. It's only going to be about three hours, four hours, but I don't think it'll be more than four hours, but we should be good with four. Are, are you good with four? Well, it's not more than four hours. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we're lunch. If you do order lunch, uh, maybe you can order me some too. All right, let's get going here. The evolution of new media making money in a world where digital streaming rules you guys are the authors of this report i haven't done uh i haven't been motivated to really do uh, a, a new po- a new podcast with uh with you know uh, in a while and i read this and i was like okay i gotta get these guys on i want to talk about this i think this is important and so if you guys could take 30 seconds each just tell my audience who you are and what you do Peter, why don't you go first? Well, I, I work in entertainment accounting, and what this is to people, it's Hollywood creative accounting, 
So basically, I deal with contracts only, not financial accounting. And I'm an advocate and advisor to creative talent, wealthy investors, and various production companies. And what we do is we look at what's trending, how can we help people make better deals, how can we make help producers uh, reach, their, reach their profits, and essentially look, look out for them uh, when they're dealing with the big distributors. All right, and then uh, my name is Dan, Dan Landis. I'm a senior manager here at Greenhouse and Jenks. And um, where Peter deals with the Hollywood side, I'm more on the corporate side within our new media and technology uh, sub-niche. And so um, I provide you know, various uh, you know, compliance and consulting with uh, pretty much everything digital and also anything entertainment and uh, production and post-production related. And uh, I also help, um, I'm pretty involved in various like Cal CPA um, um, courses. Uh, I just uh, um, helped out with the 2016 Cal CPA motion picture and television industry um, forum. And so, uh, yeah, that's, that's my shtick. Great, great. So, guys, so this, this report that you've put together, is this an annual thing that you guys do, or was there something... Uh, new or motivating that made you want to put this report together now? Sort of like, why now? What was the impetus to put this together? What do you hope to achieve out of this report, which ultimately, I'm assuming, is is for filmmakers to help figure out where they and how they can make money in the production of their films? we do this annually, and we it, this this completes our story of the last three years. We started three two years ago with consumption, then we went into production, and this year was about distribution. And we're talking about new media each of these years because the industry is evolving so quickly. You can ha- you can come back and have the same discussion, and it's so different, and it's. You have a crystal ball, and you're looking how many of your predictions came true. How is the forecast going? So this is we're living this both as professionals and as consumers. So, guys, uh, just so that you know, the people who are listening to this have some context. Can you give, I guess, the three bullet point highlight reel? Like, what are the three most important takeaways that you feel you gleaned from you know doing the research for this report? All right. I mean, if I had to, if I had to take a step back and think of the three most important things, um, I think the, the the first bullet point that I would have, the most important thing, is uh, everything is uh, going to be pushed to digital. We're seeing a lot of emphasis on streaming. Uh, we talk about this new media, but uh, it's been around long enough. I think that we could just call it media at this point. But the push to to online streaming and digital uh, distribution of content. Um, I think uh, the second bullet point. Um, that uh, that I want to talk about, and also a theme of this white paper, is globalization. So uh, the pushing of content abroad, especially you see um, regions such as Asia, specifically China, becoming such a, a massive player, and also um, India is also um, rising significantly. And so it's um, not only pushing content out globally, but how does it get tailored, and how do advertisers um, you know monetize on content that's being seen elsewhere? And then um, the third thing um, that I would um, talk about, um, and I'll also have Peter kind of talk about a little bit more, is kind of the, the new models um, that are emerging, especially with a lot of the subscription video-on-demand platforms. Well, I, I, I think let's 
let's actually tackle these backwards because I think that a lot of people who certainly you know are, are listening to this are interested in the new models. They're interested in really very tactical information, sort of what can they do to take advantage of some of your findings. So if if, if you're suggesting you know that there's that 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 there's open doors now in China and India that there's I mean yes I kind of think we all know things are moving digitally moving there very quickly and that media itself has sort of just become media it's not there's no the differentiation between you know where you put it is almost becoming irrelevant but sort of what what do filmmakers like you've put this report together which has a lot of information of where money's moving and and how it's moving there but I'd love to know what filmmakers and what you feel filmmakers should do and, and, you know, and what they can do to take advantage of the things that you found. I mean, what would you say are the steps that they can do to you know, take advantage of this information? Well, one thing they can do is now that the SVOD buyers, and for your audience, SVOD means subscription video on demand, which is Netflix, Hulu, and Amazon Prime, They've entered into this space, and they've, they've committed to spend more than $10 billion acquiring new content and creating new content. So there's, there's a lot more avenues for producers uh, to be creative. They have, they have three new key players, really, to deal with. And, and the, the model is very different, because now the model deals with, rather than box office or rating, bonanza ratings, producing them immediately, you're dealing with retention of subscribers and acquiring new subscribers, which gives rise to niche products. Can you, can you kind of peel that away a bit? When you say give, gives rise to niche product, what do, you, what do you mean by that? That means that there's room for a lot more content. There's sub-genres and sub-genres. You don't, you don't necessarily need to uh, appeal to a mass audience. It depends on what type of show you're doing. If you're doing an expensive, uh, you know, very cinematic show like uh, Game of Thrones, you need a large audience. But you can also have a very specialized show that that does very well on SVOD, and it just appeals to a small demographic because the SVODs care about retention of uh, subscribers or acquiring new subscribers. So it's a different model. You don't need to be a huge success out of the gate. Do you feel that this is more? Uh, I, I don't know whether you actually came across this in in your research, but is that geared towards more um, identifi- identifiable product, like a, a documentary, for example, that has a defined audience, or are you finding that those results would be sort of similar across the board, be it narrative, uh, specific genre films, documentary, family? Does it skew in any direction, or is it just broad? It, it gives rise to documentaries where a, where a documentary can be very successful. Uh, think of, uh, actually, in our white paper, we touched upon uh, day-and-date releases, and we touched upon Beasts of No Nation. And from my sources on Netflix, I hear this was a very, uh, a very popular film on Netflix. It had a lot of viewership, which would not have been possible in a theater. I don't know if you want to add into this. Yeah, I mean, especially, you know, you know, Peter talked about documentaries. I like to also, you know, throw in independent films um, in the mix as well. Um, typically, they have limited releases, um, but, you know, they've been doing extremely popular, like, as Peter talked about, Beasts of No Nation. And, you know, also, 
you know, what, what's also cool about, uh, I guess, these platforms is that it allows users to more access um, to these genres and subgenres, and it also, you know, allows for, you know, other opportunities within, you know, content that's tailored specific to, to specific genre, uh demographics or regions of the world, and also it um, gives rise to a lot of um, you know, specific targeted advertising as well that, we'll, that you see right. in there. But I guess to answer your question, you know, in terms of types of content, I would see the biggest the biggest thing that's being skewed for would be kind of your indie films and documentaries and things that just wouldn't have been given their, their big shot on the silver screen. Right. I mean, there's essentially such a demand for content that that there's something created for every niche audience, whether whether you're you know preteens or the older demographics or people who are into horror, into fantasy, there's just it's just expanding across the board. Right. And right now, there's just a massive race to get the most content. And so maybe maybe in a, in a few years that, that might change where it's more um, geared to specific kinds of content. But right now, it's just kind of any content anybody can get their hands on, especially good content, um, whether it's documentary, indie films. Um, you know, Netflix has Brad Pitt's War Machine, which is like $60 million. You know, it's uh, we're seeing it all across the board. But uh, right. yeah, I mean, most people who are listening to this uh, is they're, they're not this they're not the studio players, right? So they're not the you know the uh, you know the big heavy lifting you know studio producers. We're talking about the indie filmmakers for the most part, and a lot of money, a lot of the Netflix money is going to. Uh, and you know, and the, and the Amazon money and, this, and and the Hulu money. As far as I'm aware, I'd say a, a large portion of it. And I don't know whether you have any data on this. Like a large portion of that is, you know, is is going towards those those big heavy hitters. How much room is there for the independent filmmaker in what you found? And sort of is the independent filmmaker able to take advantage of these trends? Uh, I, I wouldn't say to the same degree as obviously the big guns because that's obviously not the case but are they really is the independent filmmaker really able to take advantage of the trends that you're seeing i i think so i mean there, there's a, a kind of a, an interesting split i mean you have um movies and, and production uh, mostly long form that's being acquired but there's also this push for original content and if you look at um, some of the highest performing shows on you know Netflix and Hulu, uh, or, or the highest shows out of all networks and including digital, um, you know the, the streaming giants you know have a, a fair share at the top. And so as an independent producer or filmmaker, I'd be looking at opportunities to not only get my film out there within that realm, but there's you know increased opportunities to work on you know new content as well and new programming uh, or um, you know kind of like uh, original program, program uh, I guess television is, is what I would call it. But it gives the, new, the independent producers another platform to be seen. For example, you can just go on Amazon Prime and see the new releases, and you, you'll see so many, out of the 50 films displayed, you'll see so many of them that are not studio releases. These are not your, your traditional tent poles. And these are the types of movies that are not playing in in typical t- typical theaters. They would only be playing in your specialty art house art house film. So it gives it gives them that platform to be seen, to create their brand, 
And uh, I think I think it's a wonderful time to be uh, an independent producer because you can go with the traditional route with the pre-sales and going finding a domestic distributor and releasing theatrically, or you can go to Netflix, Amazon, or Hulu, and uh, and they release. Right. I mean, everybody throws out Netflix, Amazon, and Hulu right right now. I mean, so uh, there's a certain part of me, and uh, I, I you know I really want to. I want to dig into this because there's a certain part of me that goes, well, everybody's knocking on that door, right? And yes, I do think to a certain degree we are I, – actually, I, I believe that we we are entering a new renaissance for, for filmmakers. There was a period of, I don't know, 15 years where everybody was saying, you know, the, the industry is getting worse, the industry is getting worse, the industry is getting worse. And that was a year-over-year thing. I just I, – I, you know, there wasn't a year that would go by that would say this year is worse than the, you know, the, than the last. But I do feel that things are getting better. So I'm definitely on the same side as you guys where it's there's there's opportunity now that never existed before. What I and and I and, and I also believe that, you know, from from reading your report that that the independent filmmaker can certainly take advantage of it. What I'm curious about is, though, this this idea and notion of shelf space that Netflix is only picking up, for example, so many new titles per month because they're only they, they only need to access you know 30 new titles a month for example that was a something that we had heard on one of our earlier podcasts where they only need 30 titles a month to keep their subscribers so they're only going to put 30 new titles a month and then out of those 30 you know maybe 20 of them are are studio and, and the other 10 are indie i mean i i don't know if these numbers jive with what you're saying but i'm getting to the idea of shelf space and how much shelf space there is for independent filmmakers um, do you, do you agree? Disagree? I mean, where, where do you kind of sit on this whole idea of yes, there's more opportunity, but you know, is the shelf space really infinite? I, I would disagree with that because most most film produced and created these days is independent. This is not studio money. Most 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 films that are released in the United States, uh, their their monies are coming from wealthy wealthy individuals. Uh, production companies raising the money through traditional means of pre-sales, debt, equity, and uh, self-money incentives like such as tax credits. Uh, studios are becoming more of a just a distribution house rather than a producer. Uh, they've essentially moved away uh, from from the lower, uh, from the middle budget and low budget, really just focusing on the big tentpole sequels and sometimes uh, new genre product uh, like low-budget horrors. So I would say there's more shelf space for the independent producer these days, more than ever. That's great. No, that's good to hear. I, I mean, I'm, and I'm happy that you push back on that. Like, I'm not. I'm definitely not trying to make any assertions for you guys. I'm just trying to echo some of the things that we've heard on the podcast and just from my conversations from people in the industry. So it is good to hear that that's how you guys feel, and that's what this this report and uh, you know and research that you guys have done is showing. Um, let me touch base on Asia now because you mentioned that before. In your report, you mentioned that there's 79%, uh, I guess, growth in that territory. And I was curious to understand what that number meant. Uh, what is When you say Asia has, has had a growth of 79%, what does that 79% represent? Uh, and what does that mean for, you know, for, for filmmakers? So... So our 79%, you know, we're, we're looking at uh, streaming media um, for this specific um, example. And what in Asia has become uh, 
really growing in terms of the number of eyeballs that are viewing content. Um, and that, that goes all the way from you know um, films that are being released uh, through traditional means um, through also they have they have their own version of Netflix over there but then also through being uh, consumed through the internet and you know Asia has kind of grown to if you look at uh, when a movie comes out and like especially a big budget one that's released in, in China um, when you look at if you go on like box office mojo or whatever there's a lot of cases where China will actually make up um, you know, half or more than half of the total box office receipts. And it's becoming such a huge player in terms of you know, um, how movies are making money and how content is being tailored um, so that they will get those, those um, viewership numbers in China because with, with, uh, without that, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of missing out on a big market. But a lot of the films that, that we're accustomed to, the United States used to be such a dominant box office. Um, now Asia is is definitely rising significantly um, to be one of the you know other top box offices in the world. Yeah, so the 79% really means that the insiders see Asia having the most potential for growth uh, in streaming. And you take the three big territories there, you take China, you don't you don't have any of the U.S. players really established there. This is one of the one of the two territories where Netflix is not established. Amazon is not there. They have their own services then touched upon. In there's a, there's a lot of censorship in China, so it's seen as a huge opportunity. India is another place where they're growing their broadband, and U.S. product traditionally has not had as much success as the the most locally produced content. And, and and Japan does not have um, does not really have a highly developed SVOD marketplace, and that's why it's seen as such a as such an opportunity, both for U, U.S. product, but also U.S. produced uh, local language productions. Yeah, I mean, also you know because there's such opportunity out there, coupled with you know some some massive box office numbers. Um, it's uh, you know not by any surprise of us has become one of the biggest perceived growth areas, and I mean even if you look like a film like Warcraft, which uh, tanked in the United States, um, you know this China's box office is what actually kept it uh, you know in, in the black um, versus staying in the red, and so it's a combination of experience of what we're seeing now, also kind of uh, additional areas for growth um, in, in just. Streaming and traditional marketplace and, and Chinese and right now Chinese media companies are so eager to export uh, Chinese culture and really flex their soft power, where they're looking to uh, partner up with U.S. production companies, studios, and top A talent to create Chinese stories. And they understand that really to appeal to a mass audience, they need them to be in English. Uh, but perhaps it's it's going to be stories that are set in China, or it's a Chinese story or allegory told through uh, globally recognized actors. Uh, right. For example, Transformers, the new Transformers is, mm-hmm. is set in China, largely set in China. China has built this massive studio out there uh, with, I believe it was one that was involved in that. Yeah. So. It's, okay, so I mean... <sighs> It's funny. I mean, I I, I don't know what the uh, the the independent filmmaker 
does on a practical level to, to take advantage of that? I mean, do you have any recommendations of, because I, I completely agree, it's, it's a massive, massive, massive opportunity. I, I, and this is the first time I've ever had this conversation with anybody on the podcast about, you know, growth in Asia, uh, opportunity there. I'm very much in the dark of what one should actually do when they're thinking about, okay, there is this opportunity there. What can I do right now with this film that I'm developing? Who should I be talking to? Uh, Who should I be reaching out to? I mean, do you have any recommendations for what filmmakers should do if they're saying, ah, you know what, I have a film that, you know, maybe we'd want to film there, a partner with somebody there, or maybe it's a producer that wants to look at Chinese stories that they can, you know, uh, uh, co-produce with. I mean, is there any any way that you could steer somebody who's listening to this to say, okay, you know, yes, there's this opportunity. Maybe you should think about, you know, l- you know, strategically, what should people be doing? Is really what I'm getting at. And any 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 thoughts there? Well, specifically when it comes to China, I mean, I would caution independent producers uh, what type of content they're trying to sell because China is really not looking for independent films, dramas. They're looking for big action movies. They're looking for large tentpole studio type product. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't uh, opportunities for independent producers. They're just they're just looking for scale in these glamorous, glitzy Hollywood productions. Yeah, and I mean, so what makes it hard for independent producers in respect to China is that they only allow something like 30-something, you know, foreign movies to come in and be distributed a year. And so when you're kind of left with such a a small number um, to show, that's that's typically why the, the big budget movies, you know, make their way in. That plus kind of what the the market's demanding, and so so it's, it's hard as an independent producer to become take one of those like you know thirty four spots. Um, right. For if I was an independent producer, um, you know I'd be thinking you know first is my is my content and storyline going to um, you know be applicable or you know or at least not alienate anything um, that would prevent it from doing well in in Asia. And obviously, there's a lot of um, Chinese money that's coming in um, to Hollywood right now. And so I'd also be looking to, to kind of partner um, or get some sort of, um, you know, Chinese-backed uh, money for, for my film. And it also kind of comes into um, where it's shot and the products that are being uh, pushed through and ultimately what the storyline is. And it, it can't be so United States or domestically centric if if you're going to want it to be successful abroad. And, and as Dan said, it, really, what my our recommendation is is for a producer to look to partner up uh, with a Chinese partner. Uh, then you're guaranteed distribution. You bypass the quota system, and your share of the box office it rises from 25 to, I believe, uh, slightly over 40 percent. <laughs> if you are a Chinese co-production, wow. and and as Dan said, uh, it cannot be so American-centric. The story they're they're really looking to tell Chinese stories, and as long as you have. Uh, top level talent attached to the project, you really have a chance. And the labor costs of shooting in in China or Malaysia are so much lower. Uh, there's in the incentives. There's there's a lot of opportunity there. That's great. Let me let me take a moment here and shift gears here with the time that that we have left. I want to talk about um, 
film festivals, and I want to talk about awards because you touched on both of these things in your in your paper here, uh, and the importance of of film festivals and awards because obviously there's this you know as we've talked about so far today there's you know massive opportunity in SVOD and digital uh, and how everybody's kind of moving towards that. How important right now is a filmmaker and their need to get their film in a festival or uh, get an award from being in a festival. So where where do you kind of see those two pieces right now in terms of, you know, should filmmakers even be thinking about that when they're, you know, when they're putting their films together or when they're trying to market their films? I, I, will, I will tackle this question differently. I, was ju- I just spent the whole weekend at AFN uh, meeting numerous uh, independent producers and directors and re- they're, they're telling me, well, I have an opportunity to sell to an SVOD buyer, but I want my film to be an event. I want a theatrical release. So a lot of that is coming from the creative set. They want a theatrical release. They want to have that buzz. They see it, uh, they see it as a cinematic uh, event. Achievement, and they want the awards, they want the festivals, and there has been some a little bit of backlash if if you don't have the traditional theatrical release. I think that will change with time because, as you know, most screeners are are viewed at home on DVDs and so forth. But there's still this perception and glamour of getting that theatrical release and going going with your film to the festivals and walking the red carpet. Uh, so I think I think that is very important, and it attracts uh, filmmakers. Yeah, I mean, even, sorry, even let me just, just uh, sorry, let me just 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 jump in there because I think that, that that's a really 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 important point. I, I, and I'm I'm trying to tease out from what you just said whether you feel that filmmakers are overly romanticizing the notion of having uh, their film you know put up on the big screen as part of a traditional theatrical release. Uh, is is that the case? Do you, do you think that filmmakers are actually just overly romantic about wanting that and that's maybe interfering with the business opportunity well i i do think so because what film film is not just a business it's also art it's the marriage of business and art and a lot of creatives get it get get into this uh, industry is to create and yes they are romantic about it and we see a shift where people will be more comfortable with uh, a release that comes up, pops up on your uh, iPad or on your laptop or on your, on your mobile phone. But I think there's still a, a, a strong drive to have that romantic theatrical release, to, to go on the festival circuit and be part of the award circuit and uh, dis- display your craft uh, among your peers in the community. Yeah, I think it's also important to remember that, you know, the whole digital streaming and SVOD platform is still pretty new in, in the history of cinema. You know, it's a big deal to have your, your um, film displayed on a big screen. And, you know, I think as, as time passes and people become more accustomed to, to you know, seeing their content streamed exclusively on uh, digitally and when, you know, films are allowed to be up for more awards, um, even if they're not first uh, screen on a big screen, we'll probably see a shift. But I think still there's, um, you know, we're, we're still kind of new into this territory. So kind of the, the old fashioned way of doing stuff is still kind of um, sought, thought, uh, sought after by, by independent uh, producers. And, and another 
part that comes into this is that the creators really believe in their product. They think that not only is this an artistic achievement, this, this is going to really be successful. And I'm an outsider, and I can tell you that the numbers game is that very, very few independent films actually wind up making profits. Yet they see that their product is, has a chance, has a chance to reach an audience. And when you go with the traditional studio model or distribution model, you have a chance to participate uh, in profits and in the back end, uh, which may be greater than uh, what the SVOD buyers are giving you. Well, let's actually, let's actually talk about that for, for just a sec, because now we're going to get into some of this accounting stuff, and I know you guys are, are you know, an accounting firm. Let's talk about some of those, those deals, specifically those deals for like net profit deals, bringing your actors in. Uh, I know there's, there's comments uh, throughout your white paper here about uh, you know, bringing an actor on board and the kinds of deals that actors uh, are now doing uh, as part of this, the, the new digital deal. So, like, what are you? Can can you comment on sort of what you are seeing right now, and maybe some of the research that you've seen in terms of, you know, what are the sort of uh, either changes in distribution fees, changes in the way actors are putting their deals together? Just some numbers that I think producers can take away, so that when they're trying to bring an actor in, they have some idea of okay, this is what the new deal with actors looks like. This is what the new deal with distributors look like. Any kind of information on that level I think would be super helpful. Well, the traditional studio deals and, and even theatrical traditional media deals haven't really changed much. I mean, the numbers may shift a little bit from one market to the next, but it still largely remains the same where you have to recoup your distribution, your production costs before you're making any profits. And, and before you get there, there's distribution fees and all kinds of uh, other additions tacked on by the distributor. However, if you, if you hit it big, there may be bonanza profits in mind. You know, you can really hit the jackpot or can win the lottery. Uh, but when you're dealing with SVOD buyers, this is, this is the whole new model that's shaking up the industry is that the SVOD buyer says, okay, this was your budget, we'll give you a premium over that. They take the risk out of it. And as a, as an act, as a, as a producer, you may get your budget plus and then some. And, but essentially you're giving up all rights in, in all territories and all media. So you have a built-in profit, but there's a ceiling of what you can achieve. You're giving up your back end. Right. And, and do you think that that affects a producer's ability to, say, make a deal with, uh, with talent? Like if, if, they're, if, if, a, if a producer is communicating with you know, agents and managers of talent and you know, the agents are saying, okay, we, wanna, you know, uh, we want you know, so-and-so to have a back-end deal, well, that back-end deal may completely disappear in these you know, new digital distribution outlets because it's just recoup budget plus a percentage. So it sounds like if you're making your movie for a million bucks and then you sell it to, say, Netflix for a million three, that that profit margin there or that back end that's available for talent, it's capped. Right. So what, what and, and, you know, agents and other industry insiders are fretting, you know, what's going to happen if back ends go away? So to counter that, uh, someone like Netflix essentially does a buyout. I mean, they dis they project what a backend may be, they discount the backend. Of course, they keep their cards close to their, their chest, so nobody knows 
what type of numbers go into there, but they do offer uh, top A talent a, a sort of a buyout. For example, they've done these films with Adam Sandler, <laughs> and and you 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 have your regular fee, you know, for the acting or producing or directing services, and on top of that, Netflix would would offer you a buyout of of your back end, and they offer it to you up front. Yeah, and then also, you know, I think that we're also seeing a trend of just the back-end deals also just decreasing in general. I mean, with, with uh, you know, people buying, you know, less Blu-ray DVDs, SVOD um, becoming more pro- prevalent, the shortening of the window from theatrical release to when people can view it. And so there's been, you know, kind of also an assumption that, you know, if, if the back-end is decreasing, then it obviously takes a little bit of of that worry out of the Netflix deal. I mean, you'll still, you still would have to worry, like, if this film was to strike really big, am I going to lose out? Um, but, you know, what we're seeing is this this big back end that everybody's so worried about, in, in most cases, is actually shrinking. And so, um, with, with that being the case, it kind of adds, you know, a little bit more of a gamble um, with whether you would want to avoid going to, uh, like, a Netflix if you're just thinking about the back end. Right, but if you really have a great property and you have and you have something that can appeal to a mass audience or even to a niche audience, and you have a, a, a small enough budget, going the traditional route with a back end is you know is is very advantageous. This can bankroll your future projects. If it's an evergreen title, it can produce income for you for the rest of your life. Uh, so producers are very reluctant to, to give that up. Sorry, go ahead. Complete the thought. And part of my job is to be an advocate for them. I I perform uh, hundreds of uh, these contractual participation audits to find producers' money and to make sure that they're being treated in an equitable manner by the studios and other distributors. Can you talk about what you're finding in these in these audits? Uh, Like in general, what are the what are the sort of the, the those touch points that would be. I don't know if there's any revelations that you that you find when you do these audits, but you know, uh, I'm certainly very curious. What do you find when you start, you know, actually digging in, in into the numbers? Well, there's the, the findings are we're, we're finding three types of I would say findings. Uh, one is errors; it's simply a miscode or somebody screwed up in coding to a title, or certain revenues didn't flow in. Right. But so hold on, hold on. Like quote unquote, it was a miscode. <laughs> but you know these are largely going away as we as we're automating everything we're building the, the studios and distributors have these enterprise reporting systems and the second one and this is the most prevalent one is uh, interpretation interpretational issues and this is I will I will just simply say that studios and distributors use aggressive interpretations to their advantage of the contract. These contracts are purposely vague, and you can you can interpret what is a production cost or what is a distribution cost. Uh, for example, I recently dealt on an audit where where it was a television it was a television show and there there's an imputed fee based on the budget. So uh, the larger the budget, the higher the fee is, uh, like a network fee. And what happens is that certain costs were classified as distribution costs, which just come, which just reduce your income by 100%. 
and we were able to move them and reclassify them as production costs, whereby dollar for dollar this discounted as revenue. So it's it's very complex, and it's but what we see is that there's a lot of errors out there, and these are interpretive errors, and this is what producers should be on the lookout for. Yeah, I mean, that's so hard, that stuff. I mean, when you're, when you're a producer and you're trying to, to make a deal with a distributor for your film, and you've got a contract, and that contract's 45 pages long, I mean, obviously the device is hire somebody who knows what they're doing, but still, are there any, like, big picture clauses? Like, is it the modified adjusted gross receipt clause like is there is there like that 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 you know because they always had they always all these contracts come with the same sort of standard titling is there one you know one or two big picture elements in the distribution deal that producers should just be like okay i gotta look at this in my contract because i guarantee you right now there's somebody listening to this who's trying to do a distribution deal and they will take what you're about to say right now and look at their contract in that area so best advice you can give to the person who's in the middle of this right now? I would say make sure that streaming media, which is SVOD, VOD, is reportable as a television market rather than home video. Because video in many instances traditionally has been reported at a royalty rate. And and SVOD, which is subscription video demand, is really a replacement market for television, not for your DVD hard goods, because as it's not transactional. So I would say the number one thing out there, and it's and it's uh, and it's going to be a big talking point in the industry, and it has been, and it's going to continue for the next couple of years, is the treatment of SVOD streaming revenues. Okay, so hold on, I, I just got to put a pause on that right there because anybody who's listening may not have understood that, and I have to admit of of all the things that we've talked about today, that point right there may in fact be the most lucrative of all the discussion points. So I really want to make sure people understand what you guys just said. DVD and home video traditionally have, I think it's what, a 20% royalty rate? Is that Correct. Right? Whereas and you're that, saying don't... Go ahead. Yeah, sorry, so what you're saying, if, if, if I'm just going to paraphrase, is that when you're doing your contract, make sure that the SVOD services are not classified as home video and treated with a 20% royalty rate. They're classified as a, as a normal television product, which would get treated, and you, you guys can fill in the blank on this, on this one, which would get treated like what? Would be treated as a as a film rental, so television or theatrical, reportable at 100. percent So the key is if you're if you're if your if your content is showing on Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, whichever whichever streaming service out there, make sure it's treated not as traditional home video, which would be subject to a 20 percent royalty rate. Guys, that's huge. That is so huge. Uh, I I think you probably just saved somebody who's listening to this. Uh, maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars, uh, and I'm so happy you, you brought that up. But that's just the first thing you said to look at. Give me one more thing to look at. Um, you know, in terms in terms of of looking looking at these deals, I, I think that uh, I would I would be I would be looking at kind of the way they specifically within a, a Netflix model. I'd be looking at how they are determining what money I'm going to be making, when they're going to have, how long they expect it to be collected, and the present value rates that they're using to bring that in, because a lot of that is subjective. Um, and then also, you know, um, what, uh, you know, 
what risks uh, and items am I am I giving up? And so, you know, before I enter into um, it, before I enter into a, a deal, um, you know, I'm, I'll think of you know what what am I giving up? What rights what rights am I going to lose by going through this streaming way versus traditional? And but not to get too caught up on that because um, if I'm an indie producer, I might be thinking I'm giving up all sorts of things by going through a traditional route, but those opportunities for my content might not be able to be um, as prevalent for traditional route as well. And so, you know, um, I'd be just thinking of what am I giving up, um, I guess would be my, my main point. Right. Guys, I, I, I really want to thank you for your time here today. I'm, I'm going to be making, a, I'm going to be putting a link in the show notes uh, for this podcast uh, and you can go and you can check out. It is a 44-page report, but it's very colorful and there's lots of pictures, so you don't have to read all 44 pages. But you can read the headlines in this report, get all the details, and there's also a lot of really cool insider information here from people that uh, these guys interviewed uh, in this report, which we, we haven't even had a chance to touch on all of it. I mean, do you do you want, before we sign off here, guys, um, are there any last thoughts, uh, things that you want people to uh, to take away uh, before we sign off here for the day. Well, I wanted to actually mention one more, since a lot of it, since the audience is independent producers, is oh, yeah. to make go for it. Is to make sure that the soft money incentives, such as tax, state tax credits, and international credits, that you think about those. Uh, these are key to making your movie made, and when a dis- and when you're working with a distributor or a studio, make sure that the production costs are are reduced by these types of incentives. So, for example, if you have a budget of forty million dollars and you're shooting in Louisiana, and then the studio or the distributor gets a ten million dollar uh, ten million dollar credit to that production. Make sure that on your statement, on your profit participation statement, that ten million dollars is reducing uh, the direct costs. So you're so you're not so you're not being charged with forty, but thirty. Uh, and a lot of distributors and studios like to ignore that uh, little piece. Right. I, okay, I got it. So people who are listening, the the idea is that the distributors are not deducting from their profit participation reports the tax credits. Uh, that were used in financing the film. Is that is that correct? Right. So the, the, the tax credit is supposed to be reducing the production costs. Right. Oh, got it. Make sure the tax credits are applied. Awesome. Uh, anything else you guys want to add before uh, we sign off for the day? Uh, just that, uh, you know, the industry, you know, if you try to define it, um, it almost seems to be changing on a, on a daily basis, almost a little bit of uh, the Wild West um, right now. Um, but, you know, I think that there's a lot of exciting things um, that are happening now and, and down the pipeline. Um, a lot of content is going to be seen in ways that it's never been seen before, um, a lot of it in the palm of your hand. And, uh, you know, not also uh, domestically, but, but globally. And as the world becomes smaller um, and, you know, places like third world countries in like Africa that are having surprisingly high uh, amounts of cell phone usership, once those cell phones become to smartphones, there's going to be all sorts of new opportunities for tailored content. And so, you know, I think uh, I'd like to leave this as, you know, 
you know, things are changing and it's exciting and nobody really has a crystal ball and knows what to expect. But, um, you know, I think that, uh, you know, we're all just excited and happy to be part of it. And, uh, yeah. Right. uh, Next year we could be talking about monetizing virtual reality and short form content. That could be the next hot thing. (laughs) Well, then what we'll do is we'll do the same podcast one year from today. And we'll do the what's changed. But I, I mean, like, I, I think what's great about this report, it, I mean, not only is it exceptionally detailed, but again, uh, and I really want to encourage people who are, are listening to this to, to check it out because it really is very, very detailed. And there's a lot of, you know, key industry players that, that, that were interviewed uh, by Dan and Peter for this. So definitely go and check it out. There'll, there'll be show notes up. And um, I mean, but, but is, it, it, it's a... It's not a doom and gloom report, and that's and that's what I love about it. It's 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 real time data, and it's positive. Like the the industry is moving in a good direction. I think that's what you guys found from your research. So it's uh, this, this this is great stuff. I can't thank you enough for your time today. Um, and, thank you. Yeah, we're, we're, we're we're done. Go. It, it wasn't four hours, but <laughs> but it was close. <laughs> All right, everybody. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Um, it was uh, it was fun, right? That that last point about the that twenty percent royalty versus categorizing your stuff as uh, as a as a TV product, right? That is important stuff. You could miss that in a contract. Seriously, awesome stuff, guys. Thank you for coming on the show. If you're listening to this outro, I really appreciate it. And uh, for those of you who are enjoying the Business Film Podcast. Send me an email, jesse at crafttruck.com, and that is a great place to connect. Let me know what you want to hear more of, maybe who you want us to interview on the show, and we'll try and get some of those folks here. Again, um, if you want to get more of, I guess, independent film, business insider information on a more regular basis, one of the things I'm going to try and do is upload content on a more regular basis to YouTube. You can find me there at youtube.com forward slash Jesse Eichmann. And that is a great place to connect with me. And I'm hoping to put up some good stuff there uh, in addition to more business of film podcasts. And yeah, um, thank you. Thank you for listening. Again, I definitely appreciate it. And I hope we're going to get more of these, more of these out there in the near future. So have a great day, everybody. And we will connect with you soon.